Welcome to the conference room with this week's guest, Noam Segev. I will be looking for distributors and resellers that are passionate about it. I want these guys to be passionate about what they're doing, to be passionate about bringing new technologies to the market. It's people working with people. Loyalty is something personal and you need to keep in mind that you're talking with people and your personal behavior will affect those people. I'm very much a manager. Numbers are in my head all the time, but I'm not letting go of the humanity, the personality. I think those aspects are today very, very important. Welcome to The Conference Room, a weekly podcast where business leaders and growth experts kindly share their experiences, actionable tips, and secrets to successfully grow a business. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. It'll really help us out. And I really hope you enjoy this week's episode. I'm Simon Lader. Welcome to The Conference Room. Good afternoon and welcome to The Conference Room. I am joined by Noam Segev. Noam is the VP Global Sales of IoT security vendor Shield IoT. He's an international sales leader in the cybersecurity sector with a proven track record of growing early stage tech ventures from zero revenue into multi-million dollar unicorns. With over 20 years experience of evangelizing new technologies, Noam specializes in developing international sales channels as well as leading diversified sales teams through EMEA, APAC, and the Americas. Prior to Shield IoT, Noam held sales leadership roles in Pentera Security and Concept Group, and I'm delighted he's found time in his incredibly busy schedule to join us here in the conference room. No, I'm Segev. Good afternoon and welcome to the <laughs> conference room. Good morning, Simon, and uh, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. It's a genuine pleasure. Now, every hero has an origin story and you're the hero of our story. So tell me, how did you get into the cybersecurity world and how did you grow your career to now being VP Global Sales of a leading IoT security member? So actually, I started my career working in other companies, actually American companies and Korean companies, Hyundai. Over there, I learned how to do international business. Israel is quite an island, as you know. We are very good at developing technology, but when you talked about growing into international business, usually that's the stage where we sell to the Americans. So I did my school actually outside. I started my way as a young guy, 20-something years old, working for Hyundai Corporation. It's the Korean conglomerate. Actually, I joined the cybersecurity industry something like 12 years ago, and I started to work for a cybersecurity consulting firm. Actually, I think it's the world's first cybersecurity consulting firm called Comsec that was established back in 1982. When I joined there, I joined as a sales director for Israel and Central Eastern Europe, and I had no idea about cybersecurity. So I just opened books, all the CISO books and cybersecurity for dummies and network security for dummies. Everyone were joking at me that I'm sitting down and reading everything. But two months later, I was able to speak with chief information security officers in their language. Six months later, I already got the control over the entire international sales of the organization. So I was promoted. So I got there accidentally. And due to performance, I was able to move myself forward in roles. So there's no magic here. It's hard work. Everything is hard work. Right. Okay. And then going from Comsec to Pantera, how did that come about? Well, at some point I understood that the real action 
is not in consulting, the real action goes in cybersecurity vendors, especially if you are looking at new technologies, new categories. And Pentera was an interesting technology. First of all, I came from consulting industry and what Pentera is doing, they have automated the penetration testing, fully automated the penetration testing at the beginning and on the infrastructure level. And later on the application level, when I saw this technology, I understood that this is a game changer. If you're looking at any closing industry, how do you call it in English? If it wasn't automated, if we didn't have machines, you and I would probably go to work every day with the same shirt. When I saw Pentera and I saw what they did, I understood immediately that this is a game changer. I joined there just at the moment that they decided to go outside of stealth mode. The company had zero revenue. And I joined there as the first sales guy in the company. Actually, there was another sales guy in the company who was a CEO that came with the background of VP sales, but not from the cyber industry. And there I had a challenge. I needed to sell internationally. I needed to bring the first logos from all over the world in order to bring more money to the company and develop. Back then, the company was invested, I think, like $8 million. We needed to go for the second and to go the first and the second round of investments. How do we do that? How do I approach new customers around the world when I don't know these customers, I have no contacts with them. But then the strategy of working with two-tier distribution model, by the way, the same thing that I did for other companies, but the idea came to me. And when I was interviewed for the company, I already came there and I said, this is what I want to do in the company. Now I needed to explain to the management what is two-tier distribution because in Israel, usually the game is that you are building a technology, you're doing the first sales, and you sell yourself to the Americans at $100 million, $300 million. But usually this is where it ends. We don't go internationally. And I saw here that there is a use case to build a real sales platform that will help the company grow. And by the way, the company today that's worth over a billion dollars still is being managed by an Israeli management and still operated from Israel. Right? So what was the main challenge? The main challenge was to approach market where I'm not located. I'm the only guy in the company. There's no one else. And how can I approach many customers in the UK, in Portugal, Spain, all over EMEA, all over the US? How do I do that without any resources? This is where two-tier distribution works. So you approach to those distributors that bring their own resellers. I like to work with value-added resellers only and distributors only and value-added distributors that like to bring new technologies to the market. These guys, you know, the idea is to transfer knowledge, to recruit them. And during the first year or so, they are not really resellers that are doing the work for me, but they are good lead generators. What does it mean? Each one of these resellers actually has its own customer base where they are selling other solutions. They are selling their EDRs, their firewalls, other technologies. I'm coming with a new technology. We don't compete with anything. So we are giving them another tool to make money. So they bring us or bring me to their customers who are trusted. The reseller is a trusted advisor who is already selling to those customers and he exposes me to them. So I have a key of reference. The reseller, who is a friend of the customer, brings me over and I'm conducting the sales. From the sales presentation, through the proof of concept and the negotiations and so on. 
So this is the first stage. Later on, of course, when a reseller, evaluated reseller has capabilities, when they know better the technology, have experience, then they can even replace me. But usually it will be not before they have conducted five deals by themselves, with me. Right. So that's the strategy. Okay. Well, we'll come on to the growth in just a moment. But just on that, okay, there are a lot of channel people that I've spoken to, right, and companies that are looking to grow a channel who bump into the same problem over and over again, which is when you are new to market, I wouldn't say it's very hard. I would say it's impossible to get someone else to sell your stuff for you. Okay. So the idea of we'll recruit a whole bunch of channel partners, we'll send them our brochures, we'll meet with them. And the minute you've walked out the door, they've already forgotten you and they're on to the next guy because there's 20 other people that are trying to get the mind share that you've got them. Okay. So when you brought Pentera to the market, and maybe now at Shield IoT, when you're coming in and you are meeting channel partners or distributors for the first time, how do you make the imprint that they are more committed to you and they'll remember you 10, 20, 50 meetings later when you were the guy that, oh yeah, there was that guy we met a few weeks ago. So how do you get them to remember you and to begin to cultivate a meaningful relationship? Okay, excellent question. So first of all, it's a sale. I need to sell, first of all, to the partners. It's to the distributors, then to the resellers, but there is a sale process of me selling the technology to my partners. Second of all, it's a game of numbers, which means when I go to a market and I want to recruit, I go with mass scale. When I went for the UK, for example, I used my distributor, and in the first training that I did to partners, there were 40 resellers that were participating. So we needed to push them to come over for the training seminar that we did back in the UK. I can tell you from these 40 partners that we did training, I had something like eight resellers that became really active and brought money. It's a matter of numbers. You need to go mass scale. The second thing is, and this is a lesson well learned, and I had a lot of lessons learned, by the way, during my career about what to do and how to do it better, is even if you did a good training, there needs to be a follow-up. If you're a one-man show, and for the first year, I was a one-man show, you know, even in sales engineering, I didn't have. The idea is to work with distributors because those distributors, especially if you're looking at value-added distributors, they're not the big ones. I'm not looking at the big ones. I'm looking at those who are really hands-on and not box movers. Right. So those distributors will be the ones that will continue pushing, sending knowledge, managing the pipeline with each one of the resellers. Going without distributor to reseller is like sending your bread over the water, but not seeing that, you know, you cannot follow up on that. Especially, by the way, that in parallel to the UK, you know, I was working with many other countries. I don't remember the names of the people. I don't remember all of the company names. I don't follow up on them. I can only serve those who come back to me with the feedback and they say, hey, I have an interested customer. Please come for a meeting or let's do a sales presentation. Mm. Right? Right. So it's about almost like doubling down on where you can see that there's actually some feedback there. So you're going big at the outset, seeing what comes back and then focusing your attention on those key areas. Exactly. Exactly the point. But you need to go mass scale. And by the way, also a very important approach I learned from an American CEO that I was working for. In order to make money, you need to spend money. So don't think that if you will be working with the resellers only, you will be paying to your distributors. You'll be saving money for yourself. Yes, you will not be paying to the distributors, but you will have much less sellers, less active, with smaller results eventually. 
So definitely we need the follow-up of those uh, distributors with us. Right. So when you have a two-tiered distribution model, what is it you look for in a distributor? And then in turn, what is it you look for in a reseller? What are the different things you look for in a good distributor versus a good reseller? Okay, so I already mentioned that uh, I'm usually working for companies that are doing disruptive technologies. Pentera, today it's a category leader, but we came with technology with no competitors. We just introduce a technology to the market and without any competition. Today, what I do in Shield IoT, we're dealing with our perimeter IoT network security, uh, which is also all the IoT market is something which is new, is developing. People are still dealing with the with installment and with operations. They are not dealing with the cybersecurity aspect yet, but it will come. It yeah. will come. So as I said, I'm working with disruptive technologies and therefore I will be looking for distributors and resellers that are passionate about it. Box movers will usually be working, selling standard products that everyone knows, and there's not much effort there. And by the way, usually their uh, share of the money is smaller. I'm willing to give a lot of money to my partners. I can tell you, all right, I cannot share how much, but in most models that I work with, I give up to 45% to my channel mm. out of the deal. I want these guys to be passionate about what they're doing, to be passionate about bringing new technologies to the market. And these guys also have distributor, a value-added distributor has his technical capabilities. In many times, I made sure to train the sales engineers of the distributor because we had sales engineers, so they can run the POCs by themselves later on. And the same, I'm looking at my resellers. So a reseller who is a sales guy that tells me, if I have a customer, you know, come over, you know, do the sales presentation, move the process with him, come over with some guys that you take from R&D because they don't have a sales engineer mm -hmm. and do a POC too. And then when I finish the POC and the customer says, wow, I'm amazed. He tells me, you know, all right, please tip aside. And now I will close the deal, right? These right. guys are not the guys I like to work with. I like the guys who are real partners. I will give him all the resources for both of us to take business. So the resellers also needs to be people that are, or companies that have technical capabilities and have passion about selling with the technologies. Right. Okay. Okay. Great stuff. So having achieved this success when it was basically you and borrowing someone from R&D to be your sales engine, there came a point when you had to start building a sales operation and building a sales team. Okay. So right. at that point, tell me about the, the process you went through to identify the kind of people that you needed and how you motivate the first pioneers that joined you in this quest. Okay. So first of all, when I interview people, let's talk about interviewing people. I care less about the resume. The resume is something that usually the HR are making sure that this is the right thing. I'm looking in the eye of the person. I want to see his personality. I want to know how strong he is, what makes him tick, who was his worst boss and who was his best boss and why. I want to know everyone. I don't believe that there are bad employees. I believe that there is a misfit. And I want to see that this guy or lady that I'm interviewing right now that they are the right fit for the organization, for myself, that they will be able to work intensively. And I build a vision for them, by the way. So they start also by themselves, like I started by myself. But with their success, they will be able to recruit a team underneath them. So each one of my guys is actually, I'm planning for him to build a pyramid below him. 
So he will be the first sales guy. If he will be successful, I'm already looking at the possibility of him being a leader also. The idea is to build leadership. By the way, one of the things that I'm looking for in people is I don't like soldiers. I want people that are, you know, they have the foot soldier capability, but still that they are officers. So I don't like to tell them how to do their business. I want to tell them, this is your mission. This is your target. Here are all the tools and the knowledge that you need. Now, with all of these tools, use your own talent the way that you think is right in order to make it successful. I will not tell my guys to work in two-tier distribution, unless if I've built it already, or single-tier, or they can do it, or direct sales. I don't care. Use what is your mojo. So whatever is your strengths, use it. If I need to tell the guy how to do the stuff that he needs, probably I'm in some way, I'm castrating his skills. Right. I'm taking away what is best. Right. So when you, if you compare the people that you hired at the very beginning of Pantera versus the people you were hiring towards the end, when they were obviously a significantly larger organization. What would you say were the primary differences between those sorts of people and perhaps how you manage them? Well, I was searching for people who had the experience and the background of success in the past, but still very hungry. I was looking for people that are better than me, okay? Someone that impressed me, that he has some skills that are stronger than mine, is something that I want to join to the team because I will learn from him also. Right. So eventually I was looking for the word talent, talents. So when you see a talent, you feel it. You really feel it. And again, this is what I was looking for. I was looking to see the person. By the way, I must tell you something. If someone comes to me in an interview and he starts to read to me his resume or tell me a story, a predefined story, and not opening up to me, he will probably not pass the interview. Why is that? So, because I'm coming very open to an interview. I'm speaking very openly about the position, its strengths. I'm talking about myself. Also, when you and I talk, I like to, do, to make it personal because there's no differentiation between the personal and professional in my eyes. You bring yourself as a sales manager or a sales guy. You bring your own nature, who you are, you bring to the customer. And I want these guys to be open enough and show me who they are really. Uh, eventually, I'm looking for good people, highly motivated, with the right experience, but still they need to have this surge in them to grow and succeed. And by the way, this is what I do. In an interview, I would usually open up myself. I will tell them it's not an open up. It's an open discussion. I will tell them my expectation from them. Please do not, you know, get out of reading your resume. Show me who you are. I want to know you as a person. And I want to create a relationship with you during the interview. If those relationships will not happen during the first interview, 90% that I will not continue. Yeah, it's really interesting. A lot of people that I've talked to on the podcast and also in my day job, a lot of those discussions are about how you determine in that first interview whether or not someone's going to make the grade. Okay. And some people have killer questions that they ask. Other people, they'll throw a couple of curveballs, see how people, how people approach it. There was one guy I was talking to quite early on who said that one of the things he looks for are people who are confident enough to talk truth to power. So he'll deliberately make a mistake just to see if that person will correct him. Okay. And how they'll go about doing it. Right. And it's really interesting that yours is very much about 
an openness of characters far more overarching where you're talking more about getting to understand them as a person and how you would be able to build a relationship with them i'm curious how you do that that sounds like an incredibly challenging thing to do in the first 10 15 minutes of an interview in order to have a beneficial subsequent 45 so other than just saying let's have an open discussion how do you actually open that up so this is my way of behavior first of all i am an open guy i can open up i'm not afraid to show who i am to anyone and I like to be very direct and very forward. And I don't like to keep any distance because of position. It's not my way. So we are the new generations of managers. Although I'm not very new already in this life, I still see myself as a new generation of managers that are more human. We are looking at people first. And probably this is my personal strength, but I can tell you one thing. Up to now, and I swear to God, none of the managers that I hired, the sales managers, or the sales teams that I hired beneath me, have left me. So no one left me, and all of them met their targets and overachieved. So it's working for me. If it's working for me, it's working for me. Maybe it will not work for anyone, but I think that the key to success is personal. Mm. My guys, even after leaving previous jobs, my guys are still with me in a very close relationship. They will always be my team. So I believe that at the moment that I will need them back to me, they will come back. So there's no point. It's building a family. For sure. Really, this is how I feel about it. Yeah. I know how unprofessional sometimes it sounds, but this is the new professionalism. Not to separate between your professional life and your private life. Because look, now I'm in Israel, it's 10.31 at night. And my wife and kids are just here in the living room next to me. And I'm doing work. So why do we separate professional from personal? It's really interesting. This obviously, as you allude to, is a very different school of thought where people feel that kind of professionalism is about keeping everything separate by having almost like a red wall between your home life, your professional life, and not talking about your family at work and all that kind of stuff. But I think for me, when I see particularly with smaller companies, particularly with like high growth startups, often creating that kind of family environment and even having things like bring your kids to work day or having a big family barbecue or a picnic or something like that these are the kind of things that i've seen across the industry the companies that do that and have that embedded in to that culture tend to do very well and tend to cultivate that it's us against the world that loyalty everyone's looking out for each other that kind of mentality so i guess the potential downside would be blurring the lines between friends and employees and not holding people to account as much as they ought to or not making people as accountable as they should be at the end of the day if you and i are friends you would give me a lot more latitude if i showed up late we're going to go to the movies and i showed up five minutes late or we were going to go for a meal and i cancelled and said it's going to be next week right okay, fine, he's my buddy and I'll give him that latitude. But if it's an employee and they show up five minutes late for a meeting or they push off a customer meeting by a week, that's a whole different story. So to avoid that kind of blurring of the lines to say, hey, we are all family, we are all friends, but there's business to be made. Well, I want to tell you that I see it totally differently than you. This is the old approach. Okay. And I can tell you that if someone has not only professional respect to me, but also personal affection, 
he will less likely to disappoint me. I can tell you that it's proven, at least with me and my teams, it's proven 100%. The loyalty and the family life of team building, I know maybe it's not very much the American style, but in Israel, it's much easier because we are a Middle Eastern uh, environment. But I can tell you that all of the hires that we did from outside also joined this. So I had a global team and all of them joined this atmosphere of family and of being more than just work colleagues. And uh, I think that the effort was much bigger. No one really wanted to disappoint the family. By the way, there is a communication inside the teams also. So there are controls. We have a family-like team, but there are controls. So there is a communication which is very open and very friendly, but the missions that we need to do are there. And I'll give you an example. So my sales team, when we were competing against another sales team, someone wouldn't deliver his quota for the month. By the way, I managed quota on a monthly basis, not quarterly basis. And if the quota was, for example, was not there, we were looking at it as a team. So he will cover up for you because he overachieved. Always it was like a family discussion. But next month, you need to cover up for us if someone fucks up. All right? Sorry for my French. So there are controls in the communication, the way to communicate. By the way, for me, it comes natural. I'm trying to analyze it together with you. All right. I don't see how managing personal relationship with the team is hurting the performance. I think it improves it. It improves the performance and improves it a lot. Wow. It's amazing that there's such a differing perspective where others might feel that you're giving yourself vulnerable to be exploited as a manager. You're seeing it as an opportunity to get far more loyalty and performance from your team. True, true. And in my general life, I think that no fear is the right slogan for me. I think that people that are hiding who they are, I'm talking about employees, I'm talking about people like me that will hide big aspects in their lives, they will not perform 100%. You need to bring all of yourself. I was working when Pentera, for example, until COVID, I was waking up on Sunday, flying in the evening somewhere, and coming back on Friday morning. In Israel, we work Sunday to Thursday. Friday morning, I used to come home. And I did it for two and a half years, right? Later on, the teams became big, and I didn't need to fly so much. So it went down to once a month. But I was traveling all the time. And you cannot separate. There is no separation. There is no separation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. So what we've been talking about helping a company grow and then helping your guide, your team grow and getting the most out of them. What would you say are your top three tips for somebody that wants to be successful in this kind of area? Oh, I have a lot of tips. Only three. Top three. Top three. Wow. Okay. The first one is that you must trust. When you start running a startup that is moving out from stealth mode and you are building up a business and you're by yourself, you need help. So do your channels and your resellers, distributors that are following you, they're your only opportunity. You don't have budgets to hire more people. These are your people. Number one rule, never forget that your success was done by them. Many vendors are getting into a point where they are big and they are forgetting where they started from. Loyalty is super important. Cannibalizing with a channel that helps you grow is something terrible, right? And I think that destroys the, your name as a manager and it destroys your company name when you cannibalize your channels and the people that help you become who you are. Cannibalize your channel, what do you mean? I see a lot of companies that they grew up because of their channel partners. And at some point, they start growing. They have more salespeople and they start bypassing their channel 
right. selling directly to leads got by the channel or uh, reducing the channel uh, margin or, you know, worsening the terms, uh, forgetting where they came from. Yeah. And loyalty is super important. Is super important. Those channel partners are super important. In the beginning of my way, when I was recruiting and managing channels, I knew that I must be much better than any other vendor because these distributors or resellers are selling 10, 20 different technologies from 10, 20 different vendors. How would I get their attention? Only by giving them the right attention, only by becoming their best partner, giving them the best the revenue out or best share out of the deal and giving them also the personal relationship. It is very important for me not to forget these guys when I become a multi-million dollar company. This is something that we need to always remember. I understand the fact that big organizations, they are dealing only with numbers, etc., etc. But I don't see there are other ways to create new revenue, not on the back of your channel partners. Right. I would imagine you wouldn't have a problem with pruning the channel. So taking the partners that haven't been particularly productive, so you can focus your efforts on the ones that are. Um, they are the one that deserve. These are the ones that deserve the attention. Yeah. Those that are just there to, they saw a tender randomly, and now they want to, you want me to participate. They never done anything with me. They're not interesting. Right. Those that are with me from the beginning, they believe, they share the vision. They share the same, or enthusiastic about the technology. These are the guys that I will always keep. Right. Okay. So number one, don't cannibalize the channel room where you came from. What's number two? Let's talk about number two rule. Do not expect your channel at the beginning to do your work. You still need to do your work. You need to understand that these guys are your lead generators and they're the best lead generators that you can get. So don't expect them to do the work for you and don't blame them for your failure to do so. So you need to go with them. You need to, you need to walk a lot. You need to escort them until they gain the experience. They are selling 20 technologies. You are selling only one. You need to transfer the knowledge properly. So do not expect to do a partner's a recruitment and training and wait for the money to arrive. It doesn't work this way. At the beginning, those channel partners will be only lead generators. Effectively, effectively, they will be only lead generators. So when you have them as lead generators and you talk about knowledge transfer, what is your expectation of the channel in those early days? When you talk about lead generators, as in they're literally like, appointment setting for you or they've done some pre-qualification how much of the sales process do you expect them to have done in order for them to you know, deliver against your expectations in the early days so they do not need to do elite qualification because i teach them and i strongly teach them who are the customers that we need to approach now what they need to do and they get this from us this message and usually i also use a motivation for them let's say a reseller finished a training in october 2022 i expect him to bring five to ten leads until the end of the year within the next two months if he doesn't do so probably he will not be effective he needs to bring leads immediately this is my mission to them bring the customers over you no know, make the introduction you will get your money it doesn't matter what i promise that will be your share of the deal you will be getting it i will just need to work on myself harder getting the deal you will see how it's done mm. right right so their mission will be measured by bringing the first opportunities to the table and those guys that will bring the first opportunities those will be the guys that will get resources for me for example if a reseller like this is making an event i will come over lecturing his event, I will maybe help the funding of the event for him, whatever he needs. But the others will not. 
right. those that did not deliver will not get the same attention. So there's a lot of reciprocity. So it's like mirroring whatever commitment they're bringing to the table, you're going to bring back for that. Exactly, right. exactly. I prefer, I prefer in every region, whatever you tell me, I prefer to have four strong active resellers than having 30 resellers that are giving me a deal here and there. Thank you guys. So, bye-bye. I'm looking for those who are really with me, partners. This is the partnership. Right, okay. That was number two. What's tip number three? Tip number three is to get diverted by random opportunities that look like, hey, I don't know how it's said in English, but in Israel, they always say that the neighbor's grass is greener. Yeah. Do you have it also in English? They say the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. On the other side of the fence. Okay. So when you're building something, don't be tempted so easily to change it. For example, if you have a distributor that is working in a certain region and is conducting business for you and he's doing, he's growing up okay, and he's delivering to, he's giving you his own account manager and he has his own sales agent and he's doing everything which is expected, provides the pipeline, get the feedback about the pipeline that he created and he meets his quotas. And suddenly a new distributor comes and he's the number one distributor. Don't be tempted. If you build something, continue running with it. On the other hand, if something is not working, don't wait a second. Don't wait a second. And this is coming with the loyalty. Mm. So if someone is working for you, is making the effort for you, eventually you will succeed. I know business should be called, but I think it's a wrong perception. Again, companies... Businesses are people working together. It's communication between people. If I'm communicating with a customer, if I'm communicating with an employee of mine, if I'm connecting with a connect, a communicating with a reseller or a distributor, eventually it's people working with people. So loyalty is something personal and you need always to keep in mind that you're talking with people and your personal behavior will affect those people. And it's a matter of if these guys will like you and believe in what you're doing, they will get you what you need eventually. So no, don't be tempted. You know, what's really interesting is that a lot of what you were saying then about loyalty to the channel, working with the channel, don't cannibalize the channel, support them, loyalty. Almost all of that is from your playbook about how you manage your employees. This is a these are my employees. The channel, yeah. the channel goes so right because the idea is that this is what we described at the beginning. You start as a single guy in a startup that just went out from a stealth mode. You have no resources. These guys, these sellers, these distributors are your employees. Yeah. They are your external resources. Yeah. You should cherish them and you should nurture them and you should behave the same as you behave to your employees. Yeah, And if you take the loyalty, it's also coming, you know, to my bosses as well, to my CEOs. The loyalty is also something which is very important to build a relationship, to tell if something is wrong, if you're not happy, you know, to tell, to be direct, to be real. Right. Uh, no, absolutely. It, it's so interesting and it's, refreshing. It doesn't sound like a manager interview, I know. But again, I'm very much a manager. Numbers are in my head all the time. Yeah. But I'm not letting go of the humanity, the personality. I think those aspects are today very, very important. Because clearly it feeds into the numbers and it works. Otherwise you wouldn't be doing it. Exactly. For me, it works. Maybe yeah. this is my mojo. <laughs> Great stuff. So tell me about Shield IoT. We haven't really talked about Shield IoT. So uh, this is your relatively new mission. You've been with them since uh, May of last year. So tell me, what is yeah. it that excited you to join Shield IoT? I'm sure you had many, many different opportunities presented to you after the success you had of Pantera. 
So tell me why of all the technologies and opportunities you picked, what was it about Shield IoT that really excited you? So I think that what really makes me tick is the challenge. Mm. I like to work with new technologies in new industries. And the IoT industry is something which is developing with the CAGR, a growth of 34.5% per year. A lot of things is becoming attached to anything that we're doing in our lives. Uh, My new microwave but... is attached to the internet. You I, see? I don't know how. Seriously. It's a wireless microwave needs to be on Wi-Fi. I'll never know. But my wife wanted one that had all these capabilities and it has Wi-Fi. And maybe it needs to watch the next season of Fowler. I've got no idea. What I was really interested in is seeing how we are going to deal today with the mission of protecting IoT devices, especially when there are two main challenges. First of all, the diversity of the devices. IoT devices are produced by thousands of manufacturers. They're using different applications. They are not built for security. They're not designed for security. They are using default uh, passwords. So really, they are very, very, very fragile. On the other hand, they can touch some critical aspects in our lives. The smart meters that control distribution of the gas, the electricity, and the water to our home today. And souls that are measuring the level of chemicals that are in our drinking waters, etc., etc. They control our lights in the cities. How do we protect those? So, Is it also true to say that often some of these devices, if they're connected to a network, they can be a backdoor into the network as well? Of course. Right. Of course, it can be a backdoor. Look, but let me finish first and I will oh, answer sorry. this. In the... <laughs> the second challenge that you have in IoT devices, in, in addition to the diversity, is the mass scale. Take, for example, 7-Eleven, right? 7-Eleven are operating 60,000 fuel stations. There are fuel retailers as well with shops, okay? In 23 countries, I think. In each one of those gas stations, I guess, and they have also the, the shop in the yeah. back. The it's actually shop. around the corner from where I am right now. <laughs> I guess that there are over 100 different IoT devices controlling the electric vehicle charging stations there maybe, or the pumps and the storage, the gasoline storage, and the lights, and the IP cameras, and the point of sales, and the inside the store you will have the smart shelves maybe. So there are many devices, probably we are looking at least 100 IoT devices. Maybe they are not even connected to the internet. Maybe they are working through a mobile-based technology. So they're connecting with a SIM to a mobile operator and from there to the control center. All right. Now we are looking here, think about 60,000 gas stations like this. Each one of them has 100 devices. How now will you manage this mass scale? How will you get data about it if someone is attacking you in, in the gas station across? And how will you get it on time? when you are talking here about hundreds of thousands or millions of devices. And this is a big challenge. I think this is going to be the next challenge of cybersecurity. I think that we covered up pretty much the IT security. We have many solutions. It's very mature. OT is left behind. OT and IoT is left behind. So there is you no, know, the old SCADA systems, nothing too much to do about them. Still, there are very nice new innovations. IoT is not being touched yet. And this is what I wanted to be involved in. So the technology is really what makes me tick eventually. Wow. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. So Noam, if people wanted to reach out to you or learn more about you or Shield IoT, what's the best way to do that? Well, first of all, feel free to reach me personally. You can publish my email address here and even my cell phone number. I'm available on WhatsApp if needed. I'll be happy to speak with everyone who is interested. 
I'm a people's person, and that's it. Very easy. Right. Again, I'm open to any discussion, open to any new energy and every new person in my life. Great stuff. Well, Nam, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute joy hanging out with you, learning about channels, learning about growth, and your, I don't want to say novel, but certainly somewhat different approach towards leadership, which I think if many more people took a leaf out of your book, we'd have a lot more successful companies out there. So, Nam Sega, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. The feeling of mutual. Thank you, Simon. up next week on the conference room we welcome back email marketing expert and membership specialist liz wilcox you have to sit down you have to write and most people didn't get into business to write create something that you are very excited to talk about right that you could tell this story you could share this offer over and over i was incredibly jazzed so to speak about what I had just thought of, the power of email marketing. Email marketing had changed my life. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And make sure you visit our website, theconferenceroompodcast.com to see all the other episodes and to get access to the show notes and resources mentioned in this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your network or better still, go on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other podcast platform and leave us a five-star review. It'll only take you a moment but it'll mean the world to us. And please don't hesitate to tell us which topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. To get in touch, drop us a line in the comments section or send us a message on social media. Just search for The Conference Room Podcast or me, Simon Lader, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or TikTok. I'm always open to a conversation. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you'll be alerted when a new episode goes live every week. Thanks so much for listening to The Conference Room, and until next time, keep talking.